Dr Patricia Lewis, who is head of the International Security Department here at Chatham House. And where are we, Patricia? Well, right now we're at the Save the Children Chatham House Symposium on Protecting Children. Because we like children. We do like children, and children are the future, right? (laughs) (laughs) And we're we're in Church House. We're in Church House in Westminster, which is fabulous. Of course, it's where the first session of the UN Security Council ever took place. Wow, okay. And so this is a particularly... um, uh, important uh, building for international relations in the way that the UN Security Council works and what we heard today of course from Lord Ahmad and from others on the first panel is the role that the UK can play and will play in the UN Security Council on these issues. And what do you want to see coming out of today? Like what, what's the aim of well, Save the Children have a campaign, a campaign to stop violence against children, campaign to stop violence against children in war, stop the atrocities. And obviously Save the Children are launching this campaign at the moment. Many other uh, organisations are getting involved with it. We have a wonderful uh, campaign by Save the Children at Arsenal Football Club uh, on um, what's called Coaching for Life, and they take football... Uh, into refugee camps, into areas where children have been traumatised. They work with children, they get children to talk, they get children to play sports and have a great time and work through a lot of the trauma that they've been through. We're talking about children who've been tortured. We're talking about children who've been raped. Uh, We're talking about children who've seen their families being blown up. And I think that this has been a real eye-opener for some people in the audience, the sort of things that children are exposed to in in war. So what we would like to see uh, from the Chatham House point of view is an increased focus on the real people who are affected by war, that this is a a human endeavour, it's a human enterprise that destroys humans. And it does destroy the next generation, and these are the children that we're trying to protect. I think about all the, the... the trouble we go to with our children, you know, making sure they eat the right food, making sure they go to the right schools, making sure that we read to them, that they watch television, they don't have too much time on their iPad, and then other children are being raped and tortured and blown up, legs amputated, and, and well, there's no connection between the two worlds in the way that we're thinking about our children. Yeah. Well, on that note, we've got some interviews from people that we're speaking to at the conference, so let's have a listen. So we're here with Kirsty McNeil, who is Executive Director of Policy, Advocacy and Campaigns at Save the Children UK. Thanks so much for joining us, Kirsty. Pleasure. So, what is the sort of scale of the problem when we're talking about children in conflict? The first thing to say is life on Earth is getting better. So overall, massive progress. So we've half the number of kids that die before their fifth birthday since 1990. So overall, great picture. There has never been a better time to be alive. More kids in school than ever and more kids surviving and thriving. However, we face this massive roadblock to our continued progress, which is the emergence of new and horrifying trends in conflict. To give you a bit of a sense of scale, one in five children around the world now live in a conflict-affected area. That's about 420 million children, and that's 30 more children 
than there were even two years ago. So the big trends are having a massive effect on hundreds of millions of children. And why is that? Is that because the number of conflicts have gone up? Is it because the nature of what we've labelled a conflict has changed? Or There are three really big trends that are making sure that more children are caught up and when they're caught up, the worse things happen to them. So the first is the increasing urbanisation of the world and of conflict. So if you think about the kind of wars that we studied in school, there used to be a really clearly demarcated battlefield. But now children's homes and schools and hospitals, those things are the battlefield because war now takes place primarily in urban areas. So that's made a massive difference to the number of childhood fatalities. Second big trend, war is much more protracted. So if you think about the conflict in Syria, it's now lasted longer than World War II. When you hear a child say something like, I've lived in this particular refugee camp for seven years, that's an entire primary education, that's an entire childhood that people are caught up in war. So war is much more protracted. And the third new big trend is they're much more complicated. So in the past, there used to be clearly declared wars. You knew the day they started and you could look at an armistice day. You knew when they started and ended and you knew who the actors were. But now we have many more non-state actors and many more shifting alliances. So again, if you look at something like the Syrian civil war, there's now over a thousand identifiable armed groups. So things are just much more complicated, lasting much longer and happening in completely different theatres than used to be the case. Obviously, we've already mentioned Syria, but where are the other major flashpoints around the world that children are particularly affected There are a few places that we are concentrating on in particular in this campaign because they really illuminate some of the wider stories. So if you look at a place like Yemen, it's now the world's biggest humanitarian emergency. We've calculated that about 85,000 children have died from starvation linked to conflict. Over 70% of the Yemeni population are aid dependent. So you've got an entire country that is dependent on international assistance but also where their conflict is highly international, because this isn't just a civil conflict. There are international parties to this conflict, including the Saudi-led coalition, which is one of the reasons it's particularly important that campaigners and people in the UK think about what role we want our government to play and our allies to play. I feel like conflicts have sort of, decade by decade, they've been in different spots, sort of heat points. And I think sometimes when we think of children in conflict, we can be a bit stuck in the sort of comic relief view of, you know, um, children in certain African states or whatever, and not think about it far more broadly. Do you think the public fully understand what children in conflict zones go through and what that looks like? So conflict in different regions is slightly different in terms of how you may experience it as somebody thinking about it from the West. So if you had lived through European politics or watching the news in 2015, you would think most conflict is happening in the Middle East and it leads to a refugee crisis that lands on our shores. But actually, most refugees live in neighbouring countries to the source country. One of the most generous countries in the world to refugees is Uganda. One of the most dangerous places in the world to be an aid worker is South Sudan in terms of our ability to get access to kids who've been caught up in conflict. So it's quite different if you're dealing with kids who fled South Sudan than it is if you're dealing with the doctors and lawyers and engineers and dentists that often make up the Syrian refugee population that you see interviewed 
here in the West. So they are differently characterised, but the thing that is clear is this is happening all over the world, which is why it needs a genuinely international response. Mm-hmm. And what is the approach that Save the Children is advocating to dealing with this problem? If we want to stop the war on children, three things need to happen. So the first is people need to stick to the rules that have already been set to protect civilians and particularly children. So there are a plethora of international rules and laws and norms that just need to be stuck to. Mm. We've already, as a global community, promised to keep children safe in war. So the rules and laws and norms. The second thing is accountability, that when those rules and laws and norms are breached, justice has to be done and be seen to be done so that we can change the risk calculus for actors, whether they are a government or a non-state actor, when they're deciding how to prosecute a war, because that's ultimately a choice. And then the third thing that we think needs to happen, and this is where listeners can play the most active part probably, is in getting help to kids that need it. Even though these trends are very big and it's easy to feel overwhelmed, there is always something you can do, whether it's getting food to a kid who's been malnourished because of war or making sure that they get medical attention if they've been injured, or crucially, and this is an emerging issue, they get psychosocial support and mental health support to deal with the trauma. So we need to make sure that the laws are obeyed, that there's accountability when laws aren't obeyed, but crucially we do practical assistance in the here and now to help kids who've been caught up in conflict recover. Beyond what the general public can do to help deal with these issues, what do you think that policymakers should be focusing on? Here in the UK, our main ask of policymakers is to update the protection of civilians strategy. So it was last looked at in 2010. And if you think about how much the world has changed since then, the UK government last took a comprehensive look at the protection of civilians before the Arab Spring, before the war in Yemen, Mm. before the refugee crisis, so before many of the things that characterise modern war that need dealing with. There's two major things missing from it. So one is the use of explosive weapons in highly urbanised areas. That's a broadly new phenomenon, and certainly the effects of it being so widespread has massively accelerated since 2010, and it's broadly missing from the old draft. The second thing is monitoring and properly counting civilian casualties, because you cannot possibly mitigate civilian harm if you don't know how widespread it is. So there's really key things that have just been missing from the government's thinking that we think if they were to look at it anew, there could be really great action from the UK government on. We've heard today from lots of speakers on our panels about other areas where the UK government has made the run-in, so we know it's possible. Sometimes when you speak to UK government decision-makers, there are what I think are quite strange protestations of impotence, of we don't really have the power to do that or we can't influence that. And I think that's just 100% not where the British government should be. I think we should be tremendously confident in our ability to influence things and to show intellectual leadership. This is, after all, a country that's still a permanent member of the Security Council, that's a member of NATO, that is one of the biggest humanitarian funders on the face of the earth. But crucially, a lot of these rules and norms we wrote. So we are sitting right now today in the building where the first meeting of the UN Security Council took place. We were the architect of lots of these norms. It was the founder of Save the Children, Egon Klein-Jeb, who created the Declaration of the Rights of the Child that went on to be the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the most ratified human rights treaty in history. Mm. So when the British government and British thinkers, British academics, British NGOs, British think tanks like Chatham House, when we get together and decide to do something, 
the effect can be absolutely massive. So I'd really encourage the British government to have enormous confidence in their own influence and power and not to hide behind protestations of impotence because they don't on other areas, whether it's sexual violence in conflict or the environment. In other ways, the British government is right out there in front and we'd love to see them right out there in front on this too. And I mean, if you can't... You can't protect children. I don't know. It's not. It's not exactly a tricky issue for policymakers. It's not a controversial one. In a moral sense, we'd hope it would be a matter of yeah. massive consensus. There are, however, areas where there's a lot of emerging thinking that policymakers haven't caught up with right. yet. So one area like that is on the effect of blast injuries on children. So historically, policymakers have thought of kids as little adults, and they're not physically. They are completely different. So a blast injury hits them completely differently. So their bones are much bendier. So you have to set bones differently. They lose blood differently. They're much more likely to die because they are much closer to the centre of a blast. So it hits them in the heart and head much more than it does on an adult. So how you treat little kids caught up in blast injuries is quite different. But thankfully, the government doesn't need to think through that alone. And the British Army doesn't need to think through that alone because we've got in Imperial College London, one of the foremost research centres on this, in the world. So if the British government wanted to convene a lot of the expertise, it can find, as I say, research institutions like ours, or NGOs like ours, or in the academic community that we have in the UK, there is plenty of bleeding edge thinking that they could draw upon. So yes, morally, it should be a matter of consensus, but in policymaking terms, there's loads of creativity required, but thankfully, loads of creativity already here. Well, that's good to hear. Um, well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kirsty McNeil, for coming. Okay, so the next person that we're going to be talking to today from this See Me Safe Centenary Symposium by Save the Children um, is Karim Albrem, who is a youth ambassador for the UNHCR Global Youth Advisory Council. Um, and Karim is involved with advocating for the protection of refugees and is supporting Save the Children's Day and promoting children's rights. Karim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Um, I was just wondering if we could start, maybe you could just tell us a bit about what your role is with UNHCR. What, do you, what does it involve? So the role um, basically of UNHCR and the Global Advisory Council is to serve as consultative group in issues relating to the protection and development of young people who are refugees, internally, internally displaced and or stateless, um, and of course in their communities. So we are basically representing the voices of young people who um, don't have a voice, and even in particular children. Um, so we consult with um, our communities about the national and the international policy. And so we, as young people, worked hard to establish this um, youth council. And it was um, launched in the end of 2017 by the High Commissioner um, for Refugees, Mr. Filippo Grandi, and that we have a platform to, um, to talk about the challenges, our, uh, the challenges we face. and share our um, like share practical solutions and recommendations. And we have the role to advise UNHCR. So um, that's a great platform. I'm glad to be a part of it. Cool. <laughs> and how, how many other ambassadors are there on the, How big is the, the advisory group? So we are like um, 12 okay. members yeah. and coming from different countries, all that's like um, refugees. We meet like twice a year um, in Geneva. There we can have even always the 
the opportunity to talk to directly to governments and to mention what need, what needs to be improved um, in the country we are based in and even to represent the, even the people who are like, in, uh, for example, in my case, represent Syrian people as well, not only, for example, how the situation in Germany. Um, so what brings me here today that um, for me to represent the voices of children who are like, for example, my country, Syria, and focusing on mental health issue because it's super important for me and I'm pretty active in, the, in this field in Germany, this is why I studied. Um, because in, the, in general, no one, there's re no really big focus on mental health and so on. It wasn't like the priority is for uh, focusing on um, other issues like discrimination, racism, um, just representing the challenges. Mm -hmm. But we have to see even what we can do despite the challenges, not only. And um, it's like ending even the wars in the... Um, it's really long term and we should not focus on it. But let's see now what we can, we can act now and protect people who are in the in areas like of conflict or outside it. For example, mental health is really, is, um, mental health is really um, a key asset and um, to support children who experience really experience ugly things. When you see the TV, I mean, how like bombs ring down, uh, children who are dead really left for, uh, lived, lived for a world, like for several years experiencing those ugly things. Um, of course, they need the support now um, better than, okay, building a home and say, okay, the world can be finished maybe in two or three years, like Syria, eight years now. But we have to act, um, act now and get people out from the, from the conflict. And then offering this psychosocial support um, and to let them really um, forget these bad memories, what they experienced, the things, and then really to restart their lives and rebuild the future. Um, so this is basically the main reason why I'm here. Because um, it can often be sort of um, the last thing that is dealt with mental health in sort of conflict zones. Because sort of like right, you need to make sure you have access to food and water. Yeah, and, and, you know, and other sort of medicine. Yeah. So it can often be ignored. So how how are you how are you going about advocating? It's, of course, I'm, I'm advocating for this. You, you said a good point. Normally, this everyone ignores this um, issue, mental health. When we see always like money invested for housing and uh, food and and what I see now, like in some European countries, how they invest money to um, pay uh, people when they want to get back to their countries or encouraging, they're encouraging people at the moment to get back to, to their countries. And I say, no, this is not the focus. We It's like... Um, there are big efforts to try to, like, trying to get people out from the conflict. It's not now the right, I can say, it's not the right time to, to go and take this step and encourage people to return to their countries. It's not safe yet. There's every, everything, everything has been destroyed. But I'm advocating to um, even share my personal experience, what I experienced, um, and about share good practices about working with children um, locally, nationally, and share their stories and then to change the perception um, um, that there is no need, it's not a there is no need to uh, fund, for example, mental health programs, and it's not a priority yet, but it is priority. Um, um, so I hope that we'll see more support and fund for mental health programs. Um, if you don't mind, let's talk a bit about that, um, the personal experience you've had. <laughs> yes. Um, so obviously you, um, you are Syrian and you, you lived in Syria for many years, but mm -hmm. you no longer do. So could you maybe explain 
what's happened with your life? So, um, yeah, that the, everyone knows the war started in um, 2011 and the situation was getting worse. And in my city, Aleppo, um, 2015, the situation was really bad. Uh, that time, the bombs were raining down. Um, and really, I can, it's not like only me and others, really, of um, Syrian people. We didn't decide to, like, to, to leave. For example, my case, my house was bombed for the third time. It's not like uh, I decided to leave from the first time. So we really tried to stay, but um, we didn't have um, no choice. But this is what actually I'm trying always to um, raise this point that the world should know that we didn't migrate voluntarily. We were forced to flee from our countries. We didn't have any choice. And there are really, till, till this moment, children in Syria who are like internally displaced, just fleeing from city to another city, looking for safety and protection. And this is, I think, I have like, I feel like really responsible because those children in conflict areas, they don't have really voice. So basically, I'm as a Syrian here, like having this platform speaking globally to policymakers and um, NGOs, UNHCR stuff, to reflect how, I mean, um, how the situation um, is in Syria. And you know to voice the the ideas and the, in general the people who don't have a voice. And you moved to Germany, so you're in that. Seems like you're in that dual position of representing, like you say, so you know Syrians in Syria and also the sort of displaced community in Europe or elsewhere. How how does that sort of differ? Of course, of course. At least the, for me, um, through I got the chance. To, um, for example. I got passport in Syria, and it was really dangerous, uh, even way to leave, leave Syria. That uh, at that time, when I I was traveling from Aleppo to Lebanon, and that time the the road like uh, was attacked by ISIS. That time, um, then um, it flooded me and other young people um, from Lebanon, Turkey. You know, the way then crossing the sea from uh, Turkey to Greece, and then across European countries to Germany. It was also really dangerous. Um, journey because we didn't fight. At that time, the European countries say, okay, welcome refugees and others, but they didn't provide like really safe road, I mean, not crossing the sea. Mm. Um, but of course, when we arrived, for example, when I arrived in Germany, I was like, um, the most important thing was for me that to find a safe shelter. I was in refugee camp for eight months. Um, um, then after nearly like a year, I got a residence permit. Of course, the challenges that we're facing now, what we want really be um, education, like, to be given the opportunity to get education and then uh, give back to the country that um, hosted us. And of course, um, to fight against discrimination and racism, general xenophobia. Um, but of course, the people, the young people who are in Syria looking for protection, looking for, I mean, everything has been destroyed, the infrastructure. And in Europe, it's about education and um, job opportunities and how to deal with discrimination in some countries, not all. Um, so yeah, so there is a big difference, but this is, I mean, for us, even, even though that we are young people who, I mean, we are in Europe, so we have to represent other uh, young people's voices in our countries, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, and um, so when you're going to Geneva to talk to governments about these things, what are the main issues? Is it education and xenophobia that you're raising, but mm -hmm. what else, are, what other issues are you bringing um, to them? There's probably a lot of uh, uh, things that um, um, I'm asking for. For me, my personal experience talk about how they can support us in terms of integration, how to overcome the negative perceptions about refugees. We will see, for example, some countries in Europe that we see like 
uh, far right political parties getting more like votes and this is for us like um, a shock and how we are even <laughs> represented in the media mm. and um, and you can see now that when you see the TV in the news you see mosques being attacked uh, or refugee camps um, so it's getting worse this is what I'm really focusing on there is really such like really poison in the language of refugees um, this is what I'm trying to change of course the as you can say, education is the key to defeat all of these things, to prove that we are active. We're coming, the, for example, Germany granted me asylum, of course, and just want to get education and give back to the country. Really, Germany hosted me and to show people look, refugees are really, they want to be active, not only, you know, come to the country and do nothing. So, um, yeah, I mean, the rest of the things, what I'm trying also um, to achieve to not only speaking, but like a global global level, even national level, the local level, and um, so we are like because as youth advisory council, for example, we are like the bridge between the global and the national and the local. So um, we would like also always to achieve things or national, locally, not only globally. Um, yeah. And are you hopeful? Yeah, it's. I'm, I'm optimistic about everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> optimistic of course ask always for support from everyone everyone should help us with this advocacy I mean um, we really um, doing our best and we would ask all people um, some general policymakers or organizations to be more open to the involvement of young people um, we can also do something and improve the general humanitarian work not only seeing people talking about us. Um, this is what we always say in a global level, nothing about us without us. So, mm. yeah, this is, this is the main issue. Um, and do you feel that the policymakers in the, in the main are quite receptive to what you're saying, to the, to the conversations you're having? Do they want to hear this? It's true that changing something, but it's um, long term. But I mean, it's good to see see like steps. Like, okay, we have the platform. We're talking to decision makers. They are listening to us and talking to us. So I'm. That's why I'm really optimistic. I think this needs time. But everything I think, for example, talk about the global compact refugees was adopted in New York. So we can and our as wrong refugees, we participated in this. I mean, our ideas were even represented in the document, the global mm -hmm. compact refugees. So I am I'm really optimistic that even um, most of the countries agreed on it mm -hmm. and adopted there. So that's why I'm happy for to see that okay, uh, everything um, our ideas and what we what we are recommending and uh, our ideas being represented. Globally, even by adopted by governments, so of course, mm. yeah, absolutely. Well, long may it continue. Karim Brem, thank you very much for thank you very much for the opportunity. So yeah. Okay, so our next interview is with Shahid Fatima, QC, who is a barrister at Blackstone Chambers in London and specialises in international law, public law and commercial law. Um, Shahid, obviously today we're here talking about how to protect the 420 million children around the world today who live in conflict zones. Um, just to begin with, could you summarise the current international law that governs the rights of children in conflict? 
Sure. Well, protecting children caught up in conflict covers a huge range of issues and therefore a huge range of international law. To try to narrow the discussion, a helpful frame of reference is what the UN calls the six grave violations of children's rights. And they are killing and maiming, recruitment and use, sexual violence, child abduction, attacks on hospitals and schools, and denial of humanitarian access and assistance. And we focused on these six grave violations in the book that we produced as part of the inquiry on protecting children in armed conflict. So if we use those as a frame for the discussion, the current protections exist at the level of international law, as you've asked, but also at the level of domestic or national law. And on the plane of international law, the protections exist in three bodies of law. Those bodies are international humanitarian law, or the law of armed conflict, as it is sometimes called, international criminal law, which is built on international humanitarian law, and lastly, international human rights law. Now, the existing international law protections for each of those three bodies exist in a large number of different treaties, and they also exist as a matter of customary international law. Um, unfortunately, there is no single instrument that encapsulates the protections for children in armed conflict, even in relation to those six grave violations, as the law is in terms of humanitarian law and human rights law. But there is, however, one instrument that contains the relevant international criminal law protections, and that's the Rome Statute. And how do all of those different types of law join up? That makes sense. Do they all sit in separate bodies or do they all work together under one umbrella? Um, so they do all um, have their own distinct planes of operation. Um, international humanitarian law, as I said, is often described as the law of armed conflict. So it describes the rules that states are supposed to follow when they're actually engaged in conflict and also uh, non-state armed groups. And then international criminal law builds on that by making certain acts criminal offences. So those two are connected in that way. International human rights law is distinct because it's been developed to apply primarily in times of peace, but it is acknowledged as applying also in times of conflict, and it usually um, regulates the relationship between an individual and the state. How is this body of law enforced? So enforcement is a major problem when it comes to international law in general, and the area of children in conflict is no exception to that. Um, there are a number of different ways in which international law can be enforced, for example, through the exertion of political pressure or through more traditional legal forms, such as by way of a judgment or a decision given by an international court or a treaty body. And to break this down, it can be helpful to think about enforcement, legal enforcement, in terms of how it applies at the domestic or national level and how it applies at the international level. So um, let me just say a few words about the domestic level first. Many of the international law protections that I've already mentioned um, are actually required to be domesticated. That is, 
when a state signs a treaty that includes those protections, the state is required to then give those protections domestic um, force of law. And so those domestic laws can often be enforced before domestic courts. Um, the reality is it's very, very difficult to bring cases that rely on domestic law. For example, there's a lack of awareness. Often the cases can be brought. There's a lack of legal funding to bring such cases. Um, there are problems in securing the underlying evidence. And even when a case is actually brought, there are some serious legal issues that can preclude the claim being investigated. So issues such as immunity defences or justiciability defences. So that's enforcement on the domestic plane. There's also enforcement on the plane of international law. And there are some um, treaties that have um, associated treaty bodies that carry out that enforcement. So I mentioned the Rome Statute, um, and that not only includes the substantive international criminal law, but it also sets up a body, the International Criminal Court, where prosecutions can be brought. So that's one way of enforcing it. But there are other treaty bodies as well. Um, for example, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, which is the most widely ratified treaty, uh, ratified by every state except for the United States. Um, there is an associated treaty body with that, which is called the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, and a number of states, uh, only 44, have accepted the jurisdiction of that body. So that's another way of enforcing the protections that exist, particularly for children in times of conflict. And would you say that the current legal status quo is fit for purpose? The short answer is no, not really. Um, although we have come a long way since the Geneva Conventions in 1949, there is an awful lot more that we can do. I should say that the long answer is contained in the 500-page book that we wrote, um, myself and a team of lawyers, as part of the inquiry that I've already mentioned that was chaired by the former UK Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. Let me just try and give a short summary of why we think the legal status quo needs to be improved. In summary, we think that the substance of the three bodies of law that I've already mentioned, so that's IHL, ICL and IHRL, they can each be improved in relation to the six grave violations that I've mentioned. And we have some specific suggestions about what can be done in that regard. And so we've categorised these suggestions in um, three groups. First of all, we've made suggestions for clarifying existing legal protections that are vague. Um, secondly, we have suggested strengthening some legal protections which are underdeveloped or non-existent. And thirdly, there are some treaties, for example, the two additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions that we suggest could benefit from greater ratification. So those are suggestions that we've made which deal with the sort of specific um, inadequacies of the three bodies of law I've mentioned. But there are really two systemic flaws that we identify, and they exist in relation to humanitarian law and human rights law, and I'll come back to criminal law later. So the first systemic flaw is that the legal framework is fragmented and complex. 
Let me um, illustrate that by giving you an example. So let's assume that you um, are a lawyer and somebody comes to you wanting to bring a claim against a state or a non-state-armed group in relation to a violation that they have suffered. Now, before you can assist your client, you have to identify the applicable humanitarian law. But to do that, you need to classify the conflict in question. So you need to ask yourself whether it is an international armed conflict or a non-international armed conflict. And that is a factually and legally complex question. Now, let's assume that you've done that. After that, you've got to identify the relevant legal provisions that apply to that conflict. Now, those exist in multiple different instruments. So, for example, you would need to look at the Fourth Geneva Convention, Additional Protocol 1, Additional Protocol 2, and you'd need to look at the various different commentaries that apply to each of them. You would also need to consult customary international law. So you have to sift through all of these different provisions to piece together an updated substantive framework so you can tell your client what the relevant protections are that apply to him or her. But after you've looked at humanitarian law, you also have to consider human rights law because sometimes that gives greater protection and so you will want to know if your client can benefit from that greater protection and that will require you to consider the relationship between humanitarian law and human rights law in the conflict that you are advising along. So both of those two bodies of law that I've mentioned are going to contain at various parts of the analysis definitional difficulties or textual obscurities and you're going to have to grapple with those when you advise your client as well. So all of this means in essence that it's incredibly challenging to advise someone about what their rights and protections are in a conflict scenario and of course it's one thing to be advising a victim after the event after something has happened but it's obviously far more complicated to advise a state for example in advance about the range of protections that are going to apply to victims that may be in the area that the state wants to operate in and so this complicated and fragmented legal framework means not only that it's difficult to know what the law is, but also then that it's difficult to explain that law to actors that might actually want to comply with it, such as non-state armed groups. And so that, in our opinion, is a key systemic flaw with both human rights law and humanitarian law. So that's the first flaw. The second flaw, which arises out of this, is that there isn't a single civil international body relating to children and armed conflict, um, which makes it much harder for victims to secure accountability on the international plane. So, for example, that illustration that I gave you just a moment ago, if you were advising your victim client, you would need to go through a number of different treaty bodies to work out for them where they could actually bring a claim. And it also means that domestic implementation is far harder because you don't have a focused international body 
that's in charge of considering the way in which children are protected. So those are the two big systemic flaws. And I, I said I'd come back to international criminal law, so let me just quickly deal with that. We don't think international criminal law is um, subject to these two um, systemic flaws, and that is because uh, there is one international instrument, which I've already mentioned, the Rome Statute, and there is one international adjudicative mechanism, which is the International Criminal Court. Now, of course, there are problems around the ICC, the way in which it's used, um, but at least there is a clear and comprehensive framework of accountability, which we don't feel exists as clearly in relation to humanitarian law and human rights law. Mm. Okay, so what would be your suggestions for sort of dealing with these systemic flaws? So um, our response to the first systemic flaw, which is, um, as I've mentioned, the complex, scattered, fragmented nature of humanitarian law and human rights law, is to say that consideration needs to be given to collecting in one international instrument the relevant protections that apply to children in conflict. And a starting point would be the six grave violations. And so all of the relevant humanitarian law and human rights law protections would be in that single instrument. Uh, we consider that that would make it easier to identify the law, which means it's easier to explain the law, including to non-state armed groups and victims. And then um, our response to the second systemic flaw, which was the lack of a single civil adjudicative body, is to suggest that such a body is created and given the competence to monitor the implementation of the instrument that I've just mentioned. Um, and we don't have to create that body from scratch. So I already mentioned the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and the fact that there's a treaty body associated with that, the Committee on the Rights of the Child. Well, that committee could be used um, to be the adjudicative body for the instrument that I have just mentioned. I think that's a very positive idea. Do you think that's realistic? Um, and what are the obstacles, maybe, to achieving that? And how long might it take? Sure. So um, one of the things that we say in the book um, that we've written about this topic is that our work was very much done as lawyers. So we were coming up with a legal analysis and suggestions for legal reform. And we preface um, our legal analysis by saying that our findings um, have been presented as a pure legal analysis, which is to say that we haven't applied a political filter um, because we didn't consider that that was our job. Now, obviously, um, at the present time, there is a real problem in terms of multilateralism across the world in a vast number of areas, not just in relation to children and conflict. And so, obviously, the great problem that a suggestion of this kind faces is, first of all, a lack of political will, but accompanied with that, a real lack in global leadership when it comes to tackling these issues. Um, notwithstanding that, um, history shows us that these sorts of legal reforms do take time from inception to realization. So the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child took more than a decade to actually be developed and then finally come into force. 
And what I would say is that we can't assume that the present depressing climate of multilateralism is going to continue. And so for those of us that do want to try and keep a momentum going in terms of legal reform, there's certainly a lot that we could be getting on with. Shahid Fatima, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, thank you. Well, it's been such an interesting day. Yeah, I thought some really, really interesting interviews, really different um, perspectives yeah. on the issue of looking after children in conflict. I think, obviously, it, the scale of the problem is just so overwhelming. Mm. 420 million children around the world living in conflict zones. But from the events that have happened today and also the interviews we've had, it sounds like there is a big community of actors around the world who are trying to sort this out and who are coming up with some really, really creative ideas for addressing the problem. Yeah, and I'd say, like, serious congrats to Chatham House and Save the Children for creating such a diverse event and list of speakers, you know, from, like, people from all over the shop uh, with really different backgrounds and all bringing something different. It's really, like, exciting to see that in a conference. <laughs> Doesn't always happen! Obviously, with us it does, but with Increasingly, other people. Increasingly, yeah. Um, and, yeah, like you say, it can feel overwhelming, but... People are trying, aren't they? Which is cheering. Absolutely. Yes. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this episode as well, listeners. And uh, we're going to be back in a couple of weeks with a more uh, standard undercurrents episode. We know we've had a few weeks where we've done just single issues. We're going to go back to our two interview format in a couple of weeks with some really interesting uh, conversations. And in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston. And you've been listening to Undercurrents.